Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making Hey everybody, I'm Aaron Jellabolo and welcome to my podcast, Because We Love Making Movies. Today on the program, we're talking to a very talented filmmaker and editor, a man who cut one of my very favorite movies of late, the action horror opus otherwise known as Mandy, and also a great horror film called The Vigil. But he's also a pillar in the house of Spectre Vision, a production company that's brought us such amazing genre-bending films as Cooties, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, Mandy, and The Color Out of Space. Most recently, he edited two brand new films out in the world, Werewolves Within, a very fun horror comedy, and last but not least, the severely sublime movie Pig, starring Nicolas Cage and written and directed by Michael Sarnosky. So without further ado, the Walter Murch of SpectreVision, Brett W. Bachman. Welcome, Brett. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's quite... Never got an intro like that before. <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, so I wanted to start with, you know, just at the beginning, how you started, uh, how you found your way, how you knew this is what you wanted to do, you know, how you, how you, and how you uh, found your path to being an editor. Yeah. Uh, it started out playing around on my parents' home computer when I was growing up. Um, I remember in particular, uh, opening Windows Movie Maker for the first time and borrowing my aunt's video camera and just shooting random footage of, I grew up kind of on like a little hobby farm and shooting footage of like chickens and ducks and making musical montages of like all my barnyard animals together. Really? Uh, yeah, that's that's the genesis. That's like the very <laughs> first video thing I ever did. So like taking um, uh, yellows, Oh yeah. And like putting that up against like footage of like cows was like ground zero for me. Um, where it started to get a little bit more tangible and a little bit more serious. Um, I was a senior in high school or a junior in high school at this time. And I began to make something called uh, the senior project, which was this uh, big career fair we had to do when you're graduating high school. And I chose to make a documentary. Um, even though I thought I was going into pre-med or into the sciences, movie making and filmmaking and had always been some kind of little hobby of mine. And I was playing football. I was in the process of getting ready to move on. Um, and this idea kind of resonated with me, this of taking a camera and following my team throughout my last season um, was something that I couldn't really shake. And so I got the proper permissions from my coach and I started shooting in January of 2004, just shot a lot of random occurrences, interactions throughout that full year into the summer where we had our summer camp and our practices mm -hmm. and then into the season. Um, 
when I wasn't playing, which wasn't often, I didn't, it wasn't that well, I wasn't that great of a player. So I was shooting the fair amount of stuff in the <laughs> sidelines and, uh, you know, get our high school video production team was shooting on the sidelines for, you know, the school's needs. Um, but when it, after we had 11 months of footage, more or less, we uh, finished the season. Um, and I, was taking a high school video production class, my first one, and kind of just jumped into the ocean, so to speak. I had all this footage, uh, started editing it together, not really knowing what I was doing, but every single day after school, coming into this video production lab, sitting down in front of the computer, trying to find my way around Final Cut Pro 5 um, and trying to make something. And so after editing the movie for, I wanna say four or five months, I had a three and a half hour high school football documentary that <laughs> I didn't know how to cut down and people showed up. I had like a little premiere and they sat through a three and a half hour football documentary. <laughs> uh, and, and that's kind of, that was the, at that point, the most pivotal night of my life. Um, wow. Everybody on the team, mostly in tears at, at the end. And um I remember the next day in particular going back to the lab, the video production lab where I cut this movie and sitting down in front of this computer and having a, a profound sense of sadness and, and closure mm -hmm. that, that it was done. There was nothing left on this movie to do. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, I probably should, could have gone back and recut it to make it <laughs> 90 minutes. Um, but at that time I, I had kind of this epiphany. I was like, this doesn't have to be the last one. This mm -hmm. doesn't have to be, the last movie I do. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of the genesis of the next, you know, everything for the next 10 years up until me arriving in Los Angeles. Um, from that point, uh, going to college, and I, I went to a little state school called Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington, just okay. south of just south of Vancouver. And uh, we didn't have a very big film program there. Um, what that we did have was a college TV station. And I kind of cut my teeth doing more editing, writing, acting, uh, shooting, everything you could imagine mm -hmm. um, as part of this little college TV station. I was doing, mo well, like I said, mostly sketch comedy, um, but we also had news programs and some other uh, related video programs. And after four years of doing this, I knew I wanted to, this was career. Like this is exactly what I wanted to end up doing. Mm -hmm. And if I was wanting to be really serious about it, um, I would probably have to end up in New York or Los Angeles. And that's kind of what led me to the American Film Institute and getting my butt down to Los Angeles. And so I'm just curious, just to go back a little bit, because you said, you know, yeah. the first thing that you that you ever did were these kind of barnyard animal documentary music videos, <laughs> which I which I find so which I really like to see some of those. But what what was it that before that, which even gave you the impetus to say, oh, this is what you do, or this is how you do it? Was there a movie where you said, wow, where you did, where you were aware of editing, or how did you even know to do that? I'm curious. I think I was really entranced by the 70s and 80s blockbusters growing up mm. in particular jurassic park had a really big effect on me the mm. sense of mm -hmm. uh this bringing something that was so based in fantasy and, and making it photo real was mm. uh, so you know when you're a eight-year-old kid six-year-old kid i mean you have the dinosaurs element of course but this idea that you're seamlessly bringing into something that feels so photo real mm -hmm. and the entire uh, magical quality of that was had a profound effect on me. I mean, mm -hmm. Star Wars growing up was 
I think I wore out that VHS tape and my dad would come home every single day after work and dismayed to find me watching a new hope again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think these big spectacles certainly had an effect on me. This idea that you could make uh, the fantasy and magic feel photoreal. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think it's interesting that you're citing those as influences because particularly like new hope, it's, you know, those original seventies, uh, blockbusters are so rooted in emotion. You know, it's mm-hmm. like that. Obviously, the the effects are groundbreaking, but they're really they're not as many effects as there are today. I mean, I think I've heard Spielberg say that I think there's like 13 shots in Jurassic or something yeah. uh, that are VFX anyway. And so I also find it super interesting that that going off of that, you you the first sort of filmmaking journey you go on is documentary, which really is kind of the editor is king in documentary because, right, you're building, you're shaping a story out of a mountain of footage, right? I mean, was that something mm-hmm. that you automatically said, oh my God, I, this is so much fun because I'm really the director? I think there was something about the editing process when I was first starting out that was, that offered me a lot of flexibility and freedom to play around. Uh, when you're doing documentary, it, it's just novel and fun to go out with a camera, shoot things. You have no idea how they're gonna to cut together. You're just kind of flying from the hip. It, it's a bit uh, free-spirited, but when you get back into an editing program, and for me, when I was you know, 13, 14 years old, that's where I felt the most free. That's where I felt the most at ease, at comfort when I was just by myself in front of a computer and I had, you know, not mind you limitless options, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the, the time and the place to just be, have an experiment, move footage mm-hmm. around, try putting really wacky sound effects under a particular shot or try, you know, putting uh, hip hop underneath farmyard animals. Right, 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 right. Something that seemed really funny. Uh, and even moving into, you know, the, the documentary, you're shooting all this material without a, a really a keen sense of the structure of how this is going to end up. Mm-hmm. And the experience of then sitting down in front of the computer and having 40 hours of you know, high school football footage and, you know, uh, trying to craft a, find a story out of that, I think was certainly what led me down the path of editing. Mm-hmm. And that's also where I felt the most comfortable. Um, I'm a relatively shy person, um, a little anxious in like big social situations. And I always felt more at ease in front of a computer where I had the space to improvise, to play Mm -hmm. instead of being on a set with a lot of people, a lot of moving parts. And don't get me wrong. I I love being on set, but I would, I always had a difficult time grappling with the responsibilities of producing or directing Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, that clock is always ticking but in in the editing room having that opportunity to sit digest think take your time play and go through several versions sometimes before you land on something that feels um like you connect with it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh well said and so then you go to afi or the american film institute in los angeles and what was that like coming from you know where you know coming from sort of your own sort of homegrown garage version of 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 film school to this very very you know, professional, uh, uh, I can imagine a little scary, you know, setting of coming, coming to Los Angeles and the American film Institute was just pretty storied. What was that like? And, and what lessons do you think you learned there that you, that you still use today? Yeah. Uh, it was a little 
The American Film Institute was exactly what I needed at that time in my life. Um, I was 22 years old. I was one of the youngest members of my class. And what I, I, I wanted to come to Los Angeles and I knew that I needed the social circle. I needed the group of like-minded people that just were in the same place in their lives. They felt that film bug, but they also felt that competitive need, mm. that compulsion to be you know, be the best at the craft they could. And I know I certainly found that in the other fellows at the Institute and the school. Um, it is re relatively rigorous of a program. Um, they don't really screw around when it comes to the amount of hours you're going to be spending the week on these things. And um, I, I think I found a cluster of like-minded people that really were pushing each other to excel in kind of like a friendly competitive way that I really benefited from. Um, I liked the, uh, I, I liked this idea that everything was based in discipline and hands-on uh, practice. Uh, it was, they had some theoretical, theoretical stuff, but it's not a film history program. You know, it's not, uh, you're not going to be reading books. They're going to be giving you an Alexa and put you in front of an avid and you, you will learn by doing, um, and you will learn by sometimes by humiliation as well. Like <laughs> they have, uh, one of the, part, the, the core parts of their curriculum is you make, at least as an editor, you participate in six short films your first year. And when you, you show all these movies, to the rest of the student body and it's, it's a graduate program and so you're mostly dealing with you know people in their late to mid 20s uh, and people in their early 30s and you know these are all very you know serious you know um, like-minded people that want to be the best they they can and they sh then screen these movies in a theater with like 120 of your classmates and then you go to the front of the classroom well, the theater and you sit in a row with your director, your producer, your screenwriter, your cinematographer, your production designer, and then a moderator. And the moderator says, okay, let's talk about this movie. And then that becomes like a 20 minute roast of your movie. <laughs> and you have to sit there and take it. Um, the good and the bad. And I was part of some cycle films the first year that people really had a good time on and some did not go over as well <laughs> um <laughs> but it definitely builds helps to kind of build up that ego shield a little bit um mm -hmm. which uh, i guess is something else i really took away from that program um i remember we had this uh filmmaker in residence named don camburn who was the head of the editing discipline and don is kind of a, a legendary film editor he's done he's been a, a easy writer is the first credit that comes to mind oh my god wow um, but he's he's an institution in in the world of film editing. Uh, I remember I was showing him one of my short films from my first year, and it was a, a demon possession short film. Mm -hmm. And there's a finale sequence where you have this demon that is telepathically possessing this girl, and you have footage that is shot in one location and footage that is shot in another room. And we got really crazy with like using a lens baby and tilt shifts and racking focus and shaking the camera and handheld stuff. And it's all very visceral and kinetic. And, um, you know, it. I prepared a version that made into the film that was a bit long, like it was a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. That was very 
very happy with it. Um, <laughs> very proud of myself for it. Um, and I was like, people at the school are going to be blown away by this. It's going to, it's going to be great. And I show it to Don in one of our little Abbott bays. And he's there like peeling an orange and eating it. And he's like nodding his head as the scene's playing. I'm like, yes, he's loving it. This is awesome. <laughs> and we get to the end of the short and he just kind of sits there in silence. And he's like, Hmm, that's, you did some good work on this, Brett. Can you can you rewind this and show me that end sequence again? I'm like, oh, yes, awesome. Yes, Don, of course. And then I play it again, and he sits there in silence, and he turns to me, and he says, Brett, I can tell you put a lot of work into this. I can tell that you really wanted to impress people with that last sequence, didn't you? I say, yes, I, I did, Don. And he's like, hmm, I thought so. That's why your movie sucks. <laughs> And complete 180. And uh, I kind of sat there with my mouth open. And I was like, Don, everybody at the school really liked the sequence. Like, yeah, they liked your editing. They didn't like the movie. They, wow. you, you, Brett, the editor, became more important than the movie. You're just showing off. You're just, you're just editing for the sake of editing. None of these cuts are motivated. You're just going back and forth. You're, you all, you only thought about you. You didn't think about story. You didn't think about character and it completely sucked me out of the movie. And I think it probably did that for most people as well. So yes, the craftsmanship, the editing is impressive, but as a sum product, it's not. And that really kind of blew me off my feet. Um, and it was some of those hard first steps I took to realizing what it's going to really take to be, you know, a pro professional editor. Um, another lesson I kind of a hard lesson I got was uh, when we had an editing seminar and we brought in the school brought in some top tier editors. And uh, I remember Sally Menke um, was oh, on wow. the panel and this was, I think a year or two before she had her accident. Um, and I was being a little bit of a smart ass. Um, and so I asked the seminar, like in front of my entire student body, like, what do you do if your director is just wrong to which all the student body cracks up and starts laughing. And every single editor on that panel just doesn't find the joke funny. And mm -hmm. so S Sally takes the mic and she's like, well, your director can't be wrong. Mm -hmm. You're, <laughs> you're there as an extension of the director to help them. So I don't see that that mentality that you versus them thing has to go out the window if you want to make it in this world mm. because you need to be there in service of what they're trying to do mm. what they're trying to what their vision is trying to what they're trying to do with their vision and if you approach this relationship as combative then it's not going to be a fulfilling partnership mm. and then pass the mic off and the entire auditorium was just kind of in stunned silence <laughs> and for those for those who don't know, Sally Menke was Quentin Tarantino's longtime editor who who cut Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and really one of the great editors. But that's such an amazing lesson because yeah. it's it's not and I, and and correct me if I'm wrong. It's not that you can't challenge a, a director with an idea, but but it always has to be in service of the story and the vision of the movie. Hopefully. Oh, of course. I mean, I always have, I have tons of conversations about, you know, reapproaching a sequence another way or trying another take or trying to clarify what the director's trying to do. But I think she was more addressing the combative nature of like, sure. well, I'm right. You're sure. wrong. Sure. And 
the big lesson being check your ego at the door, right? You cannot have an ego. This cannot be about you. Mm. When you walk into a room, you have to be there to help someone else out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, so after AFI now, now I, I, I've heard that, you know, you're, you're, I think I've heard you say that your first um, feature after AFI was raise with Josh Waller. And I, I really want to talk about, you know, your relationship with not only Josh Waller, but also your relationship with SpectreVision, because I kind of learned about it in reverse. And I didn't realize that you had worked on so many features with SpectreVision from the start. I wasn't trying to be, you know, too cheeky in the beginning when I when I was refer- when I was comparing you to Walter Murch because the way it seems is that you know you as a, as a film editor really are welcomed into the sort of creative brain trust of SpectreVision in terms of the dialogue and the conversations and that they really value your opinion and I I think of these those, those great behind the scenes documentaries on Apocalypse Now where Walter Murch is having these really spirited arguments with Coppola and and they're respecting each other on a level that is as fellow filmmakers and not just, oh, you're the editor who works for a director. So I would just, I would love for you to talk about, you know, your relationship with Josh and Spectre and maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about what SpectreVision is for those who don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll start at the beginning then. Um, I just graduated AFI and I was bouncing around Los Angeles doing any type of editing job I could get. I was editing sketch comedy videos for Funny or Die as a freelancer. I was doing music videos. I was doing commercials on spec. Um, And I did this for about a year and a half with the goal of moving into a feature somehow. I I knew I, that's where my heart lied. Uh, But the, you know, for when you're 24 years old, you know, feature prospects aren't exactly, and you don't have a feature under your belt, you know, they're not exactly banging down the door. Um, I had gotten a few assisting jobs here or there, but nothing long-term. And one night I'm at a friend's house and an email comes through that this low budget action thriller is looking for an editor to start immediately. So send in your resume, send in your websites, send in your reels. And uh, the next morning, um, after sending all the stuff in, I get a phone call from a producer that says, hey, like your website, like your stuff. You come highly recommended from one of my friends, a staff member over at AFI. Um, come on down the set and interview and we'll see if it's a good fit. And so that's that was raised. That was my very, very first movie. This is, I think, back in 2012. And uh, it was very low budget. Um, I think I was being paid $500 a week. That's what I could afford. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I met with the producers and they were like, if you want to do this, let's start you now. And I said, yes, cool. We'll go take you over to Josh. He's on the set right now. He's shooting a scene. Um, let's go meet him. And so the very first time I met Josh Waller was he was shooting a scene with Zoe Bell um, and he was banging an apple box on the floor to get her to react off camera. And then she would scream. So I'm in the corner of the soundstage and then everyone's just very hushed and very quiet. And Waller is having this gigantic apple box. He's just like, bam, 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 bam on the concrete. (laughs) And then you hear Zoe scream on camera and then bam, 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 bam. And they cut and the producer's like, yeah, let's come over for me, Josh. And then they start rolling again. And, uh, in the middle of a take, like the producer comes over and is like, Josh, this is Brett you wanted to meet. And, you know, Josh, he's just whispering. He's like, hey, man, saw you real. Really nice to meet you. I can't wait for you to get started on this. Bam, 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 bam. 
Uh, and that was a, the one, the first time I met one of my key creative collaborators and best friends. Um, he, from that point, we started working together on Rays. Um, I, I started immediately. Um, I was editing uh, just a few blocks away from where they were shooting. Um, and after a few weeks of working on this film together with him, um, Waller said that he had another film immediately coming down the pipe, which was this um, police movie with David Morse, Corey Monteith, uh, called Mechanic. Yeah. And he invited me to participate in that and well, as well. And he had talked about how it was written from one of his best friends, Daniel Noah. And during this time, you know, got to a point where I was kind of simultaneously editing these two movies, I began to hear a little bit more about what was then called The Woodhouse. Um, uh, and this was just when it was Elijah, Dan, and Waller. Um, and they had uh, recently come on to Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. That was um, wrapping production. Um, and they were talking about the slate and talking about what they were going to do. Um, I'd heard ruminations of cooties at this time, but this was still before cast had been attached and before it had really become a real thing. Um, and it was, this was going to be the beginning of our relationship, um, from the point where we finished raised and we finished mechanic. Um, I began to get more into that world. Um, mm -hmm. cooties then took off and they wanted me to interview with the directors. Uh, I got that job. Uh, Daniel had kind of at the same time had Max Rose, um, his Jerry Lewis movie, mm -hmm. um, come back from Khan, and they were going back into the edit to re-edit that. Um, the original editors of that movie had departed, and so Daniel invited me to participate in re-editing Max Rose. Wow. Um, so my fourth film with these guys. Um, and that, it just kind of kept on going from that point. Um, from that point, I worked on... Uh, uh, Camino with them, which was another script that Waller and Daniel wrote together. Um, not officially a Spectre Vision movie, um, but we went and shot that out in Hawaii and then came back to a few years later. We did Bitch, um, which then uh, went to my second film with them or second film that went to Sundance from Spectre Vision. And that kind of takes us takes us up to Mandy, um, mm -hmm. I think, about four years after we started collaborating together. But it's it's so cool because it really does feel like, you know, I mean, obviously from the outside, it's, oh, it's a production company. But to me, it feels as a, as a sort of, you know, fellow filmmaker and, and lover of film, it feels really like more of a collective. And it feels like, it, it seems like you guys all are sort of like-minded in terms of your taste and and are aligned in a way that that it's got a very, you know, because I think whenever you make a film, it becomes like a family. And, and, mm -hmm. and SpectreVision to me feels like this kind of, bigger even extension of that where where it's this it's this really cool genre collective that's that's trying to make these movies that sort of you know turn things on their heads and and just what is it i mean what is it like in terms of how i mean do they are they constantly giving you scripts to read or just what is what is sort of the collaboration like yeah sure uh man what to start with these guys um they are they said the kind of the mission statement they had when they set up when they formed the company in the first place was we want to make the movies that no one else 
is going to make. The movies we don't think are commercially viable, the movies that everyone else is going to be too scared to, um, you know, which leads to movies like The Greasy Strangler, for instance. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Everyone, everyone should watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from the get-go, they're up for playing. They're up for, you know, championing unique voices. And you kind of get a sense that when you're editing a movie with them, that the, every single option is worth exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, they are very open to experiment, very open to try new things out. Um, and it really does feel... I remember, I remember reading something a few days ago where like Nick Cage was talking about how he doesn't really want to do a studio movie again, because there's a culture of fear when you mm-hmm. are like in some of these higher, you know, bigger budget films mm-hmm. on a Spectre Vision movie. I, it's the exact opposite. You feel like you're kind of in a sandbox and you can really try out a lot of different things. Um, so I, you know, being a freelancer and being an editor, um, one of kind of my keystones is being a key collaborator with the director. And mm-hmm. so it's not like I get on every single SpectreVision project because sure, that sure. has to be a good fit with a director. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a really, I have a really good situation with them where I've worked on nine movies with them now. And if they have a project up, I'm often the first person they call to mm-hmm. be like, Hey, meet with this director, see if you're a good fit. Mm-hmm. And if not, you know, that sucks. We'll find somebody else, but mm-hmm. we hope you, we hope you guys gel on this. And that's mm-hmm. how it came to, you know, Panos with Mandy, Richard with color, um, Mariana with bitch, uh, John and Carrie with cooties, you know, they were, outside directors coming in and I certainly had to interview for the job still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been really fortunate with these guys that we operate on similar wavelengths. We both really love to experiment and play in the edit room. And some of these movies, you know, undergo a fair amount of, you know, playing around mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. You'll find something that works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, I, I, I've had such a joy working with these guys. That's it's just so refreshing to hear, and it shows in the work. You know, I mean, it really does. And and uh, and and just hearing you talk about the collaborations. And so, before we kind of get to Mandy, which which I which I really am excited to talk about, I wanted to touch talk about, I guess, you know, and how you choose projects. And and obviously, like you said, it's like you don't you don't always do every single SpectreVision movie. But when you're mm-hmm. when you're reading a script or meeting a director, you know, what is it that you're really looking for, and how and how ultimately do you sort of choose projects in your mind? Great question. Um... The first thing is just kind of a gut instinct. If I look back on it, if I really think about it, um, I want to read something that surprises me. I want to read something that I feel like I haven't seen before. I want to read something that feels like it has something to say. There's a, a, a reason for this movie to exist. You know, whether it has something thematically that's resonant right now or, um, or a character that makes me rethink things or defies my expectations. Uh, if it has characters I can have empathy with. Um, I, I think those are the first few things that come to mind. Um, and, if, and the second most important thing, you know, beyond the script itself are the people doing it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a very firm no assholes policy. I, I'm not, <laughs> I, I don't like working in situations where you have a dictator as a director. Um, mm-hmm. I, you, you spend four five, six months sometimes doing these movies and you spend sometimes every single day with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to make sure it's a pleasant environment to work in in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. I, I learned a few years ago that you can't work on a movie 
for the experience of premiering it. Hmm. You, you can't go through all this work only for it to be judged a success or a failure based off of the box office or the critical reception, because that's going to, you know, heartbreak you every time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You have to enjoy the nine to five, or mm -hmm. I guess in the film world, it's more like nine to seven or nine, <laughs> nine to nine. Um, you have to enjoy coming to work and you have to, you have to enjoy the process. You have to love the process. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we would have been doing the hours that we do, but also love the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. um, and so a big contention is, you know, this interview just with the director to make sure that are we going to vibe for mm -hmm. five, six months in a room together? Mm -hmm. I think those are probably the first the two biggest criteria I think about. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's a life experience after all, really. I mean, it's, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, you are, you are living the movie. It's like you said, it's like, you have yeah. to, you have to love it. It's not just clock in, clock out. That's not, that doesn't exist in our world, you know, of, of filmmaking. <laughs> no, no, you, you live these things and you spend every single day doing this material and film editing rooms can be uh, sometimes a volatile place if, mm. uh, or a stressful place, I should say, if there is stress, if the movie's not uh, cutting its teeth, if, you know, the test scores are not high enough, if, um, you know, an actor just didn't show up for a week and you're, if uh, there are always things you can in the edit room that you're trying to fix and trying to solve. And you also have sometimes really strong opinions in the editing room. And so you want to find a way to do this as uh collaborative as possible, but sometimes you do have strong personalities and it's an issue of how do I make this my life when you're spending, mm -hmm. you know, months with something that you have really stressed out people in the room sometimes. Um, not all the time, mind you, this is a, a minority in the cases, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. um, you want to find a way to make this work environment um, healthy and fun and um, feel like everyone's getting their say and you're still trying things out. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard you uh, uh, in, in, in another interview talk about how you kind of liken editing to be much more closely linked with writing, you know, yeah. then, and, and I think that's really wonderful because it sort of acknowledges it's two things to me. It acknowledges how vital a great script is, yeah. but it, it also, uh, uh, it also acknowledges the fact that editing is this kind of, it is a new draft of the of the script via the film you know it's like like tarantino used to always say about sally menke you know i don't write with anybody but i write with sally in the editing room you know yeah. which i think is super you know it really to your point and so i guess talk about your process in terms of when you when you get footage you know and and you're doing the first cut you know do you think of it as an assembly or do you think of it as a as a first cut and uh how far along do you do you do you put the whole thing together before you're showing it to a director or are you showing it as you go Good question. Um, I totally agree with that Tarantino quote. Um, you, you definitely, it is the, it is, it is writing. It is the final rewrite. Um, it is the last draft um, because you are much as an arbiter of story as the writer is. Um, you, it has to be your bread and butter. Every single decision, most decisions have to come from story um, and emotion. And, you know, thinking about the thing as a whole, think about the movie as a storytelling experience that goes on um, rather than just actors at, actors and camera and lights and textures and aesthetics. It has to be about story. Mm -hmm. um, I think I want to start. So with the rough assembly, I kind of view it as just my best version of the script, more or less, as much as I can. Um, and I particularly like to share that as early as possible, mm -hmm. even during 
when they're shooting. So like the movie I'm doing like right now, for instance, you know, I am sending cuts off to the director in the midst of shooting. Mm. And it's just, you know, one scene here, two scenes here. So they get, they're able to kind of wrap their head around the material that they're working with. And sometimes mm -hmm. that means, oh, I think we're missing an insert. Oh, I think we're missing this angle here. Mm -hmm. We could go back and get something like that. Um, but I try on these early iterations to be as faithful to the script as possible because, you know, at this point, the production, the producers, the studio has, you know, bankrolled a certain amount of money and confidence into the script. Script, they're going to want to see what it looks like. Mm. And mind you, we will often take creative liberties with that script, you know, removing lines, restructuring, moving scenes, deleting scenes, moving sequences. But we should show the creative team, you know, that template before mm. I start making decisions mm -hmm. ahead of the director, because this has to be a collaborative experience. Mm. Um, so often what I will do, if I feel like, you know, we don't need a line, we can move this early on before the director's cut really starts, mm. I'll send an alternate cut. So I'll have, you know, here's the scene as it was scripted, but also check out this version from the Avid as well that omits mm. a few lines and punches through it a bit faster. Mm -hmm. So that first cut, I don't, I don't like describing it as an editor's cut. Um, because it's not, it's, it's not, it's, uh, just the assembly. It's ah, it. getting a sense of the script. And mm -hmm. I feel like where I really start to, where that relationship with the director really starts to take off is the first few weeks of the director's cut process. When you start going with, mm -hmm. through them, with them on individual scenes and you put up the entire movie and you get a sense of, okay, here's where we are. Mm -hmm. you, it's really hard to get, get a sense of that early on with these early cuts because, mm -hmm. you know, every single, every single scene is going to bump and jar probably off of the first assembly. You're editing the scenes out of context. The rhythm is going to be different from one day to the other. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to view this thing uh, other than a collection of a hundred individual scenes mm -hmm. as opposed to one movie until you're a few weeks into the director's cut. Do you like to watch every bit of footage yourself or do you, do you, uh, do you utilize an assistant to sort of take the workload off or how, how do you handle that? Yeah. Uh, it honestly depends on the scale of the movie and like sure. how much, how much we have right. um, and, and the footage that you're working with. Um, so, you know, on a typical Take a SpectreVision movie, for instance, you know, we're usually around 20 to 25 days, um, you know, 6 million and below. Um, I try and watch everything just mm -hmm. because we have the facility. We're not that we're only shooting one or two cameras some days um, and you try and watch everything um, on the movie I'm doing currently. It, it's a bit bigger. Um, sometimes we're using four cameras a day <laughs> and, you know, we're shooting sometimes several different takes, several, several, several takes, you know, sometimes eight takes, wow. um, you know, of four cameras. And it's like, I literally cannot watch all the footage. Wow. Sometimes you just look at the, sometimes you just have to look at the print takes and use those as kind of a springboard to work off of. Um, and sometimes you have other, other occasions where maybe you have an actor that is uh, struggling um, and you're then crafting a performance in the in the avid or removing things. Then every single take becomes available to you, and you're like, okay, let's let's think of the sequence as it was like a block of Legos, and like try and build something. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So it, it really changes on kind of a case by case basis. But okay. if I have the ability to, yes, definitely watch every take. You're trying to get a, a true sense of like what is all there. Mm -hmm. But you know, uh, time is certainly a factor, and if you have you know, sometimes four or five hours of footage a day, you just can't watch everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
it sounds like, and, and and I kind of I feel this way that once you know once you do that assembly, you know, then really the the rewriting starts and the, and the real work mm-hmm. can can kind of begin. You know, for you, how do you know when something isn't working? Is it because you don't feel anything? You know, is it or or is it because you're confused? How do you sort of judge that uh, before you really get into it? Uh, wow, another good question. Um, I, I think it's a combination of you being able to relate to the movie. Uh, being able to uh, have uh, still get excited by something, even though you've seen it a few times. And sometimes it's, you have to just get into a room with people and trust your innate sense of the energy in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think it's really important to test things with you know friends and family you know pretty early on because you can sense when you are in a room with five or six other people when they're bored, when they're shifting, when the energy drops out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a conversation between you and the director. If you if you guys are feeling good about a project together uh, and you're feeling in sync, it's always a good sign. Um, but sometimes this feeling won't really happen until you have four or five scenes and you smash them together and you watch down a sequence and you're like, okay, these four or five scenes work together. And you feel like it takes that 10 minutes and you're invested that entire time. Um, you can definitely feel lulls and energy and boredom, even though you've watched footage sometimes a million times. If it's, mm-hmm. if it's good, it strikes out. You know, mm-hmm. Sometimes there's a, uh, a certain look a character gives or an actor does or a, a needle drop that uh, kicks up the momentum in the right way that gets you every time. Mm-hmm. When you find something that really works, it almost feels timeless a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and it just kind of clicks in. And sometimes when something clicks in, you're like, that's it, it's done. Let's not touch this again. <laughs> because we, <laughs> we found like a perfect alchemy and I, sometimes you can't explain it. Right, But right. it's just the, it's the right juxtaposition of music and sound and camera and performance and all these things. And when it happens, it's magic. Um, I, re, I was working on something the other day where, you know, even just like nudging a look and like an eye flicker by like two frames, it just, the rhythm falls into place wow. and it's a difference between a, huh, a chuckle and like, oh, like on the floor laughing. Huh. Um, and sometimes it's that precise. And it's, it's one of the reasons I love doing this because it's so sometimes subjective, but sometimes those two frames really, really do matter. And you can never really tell. It's something you have to kind of be in the trenches to look at. Mm. And one of the things that I, I find wonderful about this profession and this job that the public will never understand mm. Um and it's kind of like a little secret that we have, um, editors. Uh, sometimes when something isn't working on the kind of the flip side of that, it's sometimes a little bit difficult to articulate why. Um, and then you kind of have to go into triage mode and surgeon and kind of open up the sequence mm-hmm. and kind of do guesswork. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of approach it with a lot of theory sometimes. Um, in one of my last movies, I was working with the director and we had a sequence that just was kind of boring in its early iterations. Um, it was a, a theoretical conversation um, between a priest and a woman. And it just, it was never really clicking on like early iterations. And we couldn't really understand why. It was a well-written scene. We had um, not all the coverage we would have liked, but we had enough, mm-hmm. um, but it just, the audience kind of tuned out. And so after kind of reapproaching that scene, we started to really think about, okay, what's really really happening in this, what is not being conveyed. Mm. And then it kind of like clicked in like the subtext. We're not editing with the subtext. We're not thinking about the emotional stakes of the scene. We're just editing dialogue and we're huh. cutting, we're cutting, you know, reactions, but we're not thinking about what is the character going through at this point in the movie? What is at stake? What is not being said? Because you'd be really surprised by how much 
the scene is driven by what is not being said. Mm. What is a character afraid of saying? What is the conflict that's bubbling underneath the surface mm -hmm. that has to be told and expressed at the same time that you're doing um, uh, the normal dialogue? Mm. So like in a love story, for instance, um, it's about the two, you know, if they're uh, reluctant to get together, it's the subtext would be, you know, I care for you, but I don't want to do this. And mm -hmm. you can't have that written in dialogue because it would be bad dialogue, but you have to express that even though they're saying something else. And it's about finding that subtext sometimes. And so for this scene in particular, going back in and looking at moments of doubt, looking for moments of um, introspection um, and denial. Um, mm -hmm. And once we kind of did that, it, the scene takes on a different character, a different dynamic, and then it starts to kind of you feel the wavelengths, you feel the rhythm, you start to kind of connect with the characters on an entirely different level. Um, and that happens a fair amount of times. Um, so every single time I, I approach a scene, I try and think about that. Sometimes I forget, but you try and think about what is not being said. What, where is this character's trajectory? Where are they on their journey right now? What is their inner arc? And what is preventing that? What, what's the conflict of that arc in the scene right now? Right. Because, you know, for a 90 minute story, that needs to be thought about all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, well said. Uh, so, so now let's get to Mandy because it's really one of my favorite films in the last, you know, uh, five, seven years, ten years. I mean, it, it, it's it's such a fever dream. And for, for those who haven't seen it, you know, it's this wonderful film written directed by Panos Cosmatos about uh, a character played by Nicolas Cage uh, named Red and his uh, wife Mandy, played by the amazing Andrea Riseborough. And basically, they're fallen upon by this strange cult. Uh, uh, the children of the new dawn and and they want Mandy and they end up killing her which which sets Nicolas Cage off on this you know fever dream of 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 a revenge tale and it's this it's just for me it was one of the most uniquely realized visions I've ever seen on film in terms of the Panos's vision, the 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 storytelling, the the pace of it, the music by Johan Johansson, and I just wanted to talk, to, just have you tell us what it was like to 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 come on to that project and also to work obviously with Panos, but then with Nicolas Cage and Andrea. I mean, it's just such a great movie. Oh, thank you so much. Um, what a start. I uh, I'll start at the beginning, I guess. Um, I I had heard ruminations of Mandy, you know, uh, two years before it went, um, and this is when. Um, Waller, we were on set of Bitch, and Waller had mentioned they had the script and Panos was doing it, um, and that uh, Johan had just come on board. And uh, I didn't then didn't hear about it for a very long time. Um, and then I get a script in my inbox as I'm going out to go do a commercial on the Eastern Seaboard. Um, I was going to go shoot an Under Armour spot in like Washington, D.C., Baltimore, New York, and it all came together really fast. They were like, we're going to go do this movie. Um, but I had heard for a very long time that it has, probably has to be an European hire. So I don't think this one will work out. Um, but I was very curious, but nonetheless, so they, Waller sent me a script and it was unlike anything I had ever read. Um, it was extremely evocative, very descriptive, very stylized, very gritty, um, but uh, a trip in the literal sense of the word. Like it's, uh, it was so surprising and shocking and cool and violent. Uh, I could throw adjectives at the script for months, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I, I was very sad because I was reading on a plane and I was like, someone else is gonna do this movie. <laughs> 
I've been like, I, I want to do this movie. Like I've been with them for, I've been editing all their movies. Why the fuck can I do this movie? Uh, and so I was on, um, I was on location for this commercial and they were uh, shooting this cross country team out in the woods and Brett was left behind to guard all the personal belongings at base camp. And so I'm sitting there <laughs> with my laptop, like, you know, watching over all the Nike and Adidas bags, making sure no one comes to steal their bags in this big field in the middle of nowhere outside of Baltimore. When <laughs> I get a phone, I get a text message from Waller and he's like, can you interview with Panos in five minutes? And I'm like, what? what I, I'm up for, I'm up for this. I can do this. I, you can like have me on the job. Like what? Yes. I'll interview. What the fuck? Uh, sh- of course. <laughs> and then Panos skypes me on my phone and I proceed to give a little bit of an interview in this field in the middle of nowhere. And we start talking about the, the movie. We start talking about Red's journey, the, uh, the tonal influences, the, the references. I talk about Jodorowsky and Holy mountain, El Topo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I loved how the entire texture and, uh, uh, style of the movie changed as red gradually descends and more into madness. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I swear to God, this is the most, the biggest coincidence of my entire life. But Panos then said, well, I would like to have you on. Could you come out to Berlin or come, excuse me, come out to Brussels and meet everybody. And I, because of this commercial, I was going to be in Berlin in like four days. Like just randomly will be in Berlin. <laughs> like, can wow. you fly out to Brussels and meet everybody? Wow. And I've never had, you know, just conveniently when you're in Western Europe, just, you know, come out to set. Right. <laughs> uh, so the, as, I, I as went, you do, as you I, do, <laughs> as you do, you make your monthly Berlin trip, you know, Brussels trip. <laughs> I landed, I went over to, went over to Brussels, grabbed a hard drive. And that's how I started. Um, and it was, it was kind of the perfect some of projects I've been doing up until that point in my life, because it was still, it's still parts of it still felt guerrilla start parts mm-hmm. of it still felt indie, but it was larger than life. It mm-hmm. felt like a culmination of like everything Spectre had been working towards in sense mm-hmm. of like a grandiose, you know, a bombastic vision that was extremely uh, specific to Panos. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, ch- they loved so much about that movie and it was perfectly like their ethos, like their ethos of a company kind of enraptured into one movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I started working on it in Los Angeles. Um, I then went up to Vancouver and I st- um, worked out of Panos's basement wow. for a few weeks, um, which was very lovely, but also unusual in the sense that like, I didn't even have a full assembly by the time I showed up to Canada. Wow. Um, I start, Panos was um, a, more of a night person. And so I would show up to his basement, start working on a scene in the morning, take a lunch, he would come downstairs you know, around 2, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, you know, in his pajamas and like sit down on the back with an e-cig and be like, show me what you got. And I would then play a sequence for him and we'd work for a few hours and then he would make dinner. We'd watch Jeopardy upstairs and then I would go home and we would do that for several weeks. Um, from a creative standpoint, it's working with Panos was unlike any other director I had worked with. Before he was, he's a bit laconic. He's a man of few words, but he feels so, he's such a sensitive man. Mm -hmm. And he, when you make him happy, when you make him laugh, it's just this big joyous experience that fills an entire room. Um, And he, he was very specific with some of his references on what he wanted to encapsulate. But like, if you get the rhythm of the movie, and I, I didn't at first, like mm-hmm. I, it took me, I think a few days to kind of get into Panos's 
head of like the the speed he wanted, the tempo he wanted, the palette, um, the types of performances. But like after those first few days, then kind of link, linking and getting into his rhythm, like, oh, this is what this movie is. This is a, a sludge uh, metal album of a movie or like a metal rock opera mm. with psychedelics and uh, it's a barbarian movie it's it's a it's a psychedelic clone of the barbarian right um, right right and it's almost got this glacial pace that is so beautiful and and because i've heard you talk about how he wanted to make scenes longer inevitably yeah and and now i wanted to ask you you know kind of t- t- just two things about it's like uh uh when I spoke to Benjamin Loeb, who shot Mandy, right, mm-hmm. and 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 who just did beautiful work on that film, the visuals I think are so evocative, and you know he sort of said two things. He's the first thing he said is he really wished he could just the, the first half of the movie when it's just Red and Mandy in love. He wished that could be the whole movie. You know, he said it was it was so because it is so emotional. Like you said, Panos yeah. is such a sensitive, emotional. The heart of the film, I think, is why it works. You know, is it really is about humanity and love and loss and and all of that. And then you get into kind of the nightmare Conan the Barbarian uh, uh, fever dream part of it but um he said ben said you know editing he feels feels always feels like editing is invented to keep people's attention right Mm -hmm. so that so that but in a film like this with very long takes even in the close-ups how you guys hold close-ups you know Mm -hmm. how do you approach making a scene longer is it is it is it music is it is i mean how do you extend something and still keep the emotion and the the pace of it how do you how do you approach that oh wow uh I think the first thing to jump into is that uh, Panos wants to make something expressionistic. Uh, mm-hmm. He wants to, he makes all of his decisions through mood, through uh, rhythm, emotion, and Panos operates, his type of movies operate on a very particular wavelength. For him, the, the way a movie moves, the pace of it is just as important as, you know, who you cast. Like mm-hmm. he wants things to move a certain way because he, it, it became a big part of the editing process of like trying to find that right pace that he was happy with for the first half. And so a lot of it is based on kind of like Panos's interior clock on kind of what he's feeling for a particular moment, but having patience mm-hmm. by uh, what I eventually kind of been leaned into is like allowing moments to breathe. So the audience builds a sense of expectation of what's going to happen next, uh, you know, allowing the nuances of a performance then to come out. Um, and of course, when you have something that is this long and when you have something that is, you know, paced out as particular and as carefully as this, you try and get elements in there as early as possible to kind of work some things out. Mm. And so with Johan's score, for instance, he was sending us stuff from the beginning of the editing process and we were trying his demos out against picture to kind of see how that marriage and that sync process would work. Mm. In addition to that, we did a lot of sound work early on to try and find that soundscape that would then work with Johan's music and the visuals that would then try and get a, a close to as a final product as possible in the Avid. Mm. Um, so you get a sense of like, what is this sensory emotional experience going to be? That this wasn't a movie where, you know, you just work on the visuals and then you kick them off to music and sound. And you're like, we'll find it in the sound mix. This mm. is something that we tried to bring everything into the edit room as much as possible mm-hmm. to try and find that right wavelength that would be as close to as complete as possible for Panos. So we can get an idea of the texture, the pace, the tone, you know, finding those nuances that only were replicated or built upon, you know, by our extremely talented sound team and mm-hmm. Johan's team, um, which, you know, I, we, I could never, never get even close to replicating um, with temp or with, mm-hmm. you know, my temp sound effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a lot of 
trust as well, because you are making something that is, you know, built for uh, Mandy is not a mainstream movie. Mm -hmm. And I think I have to really give a lot of credit to Spectre Vision for knowing that Mm -hmm. Um, this was a movie they were not interested in testing. This was a movie they had no interest in showing to an outside audience because they knew their audience and they knew they wanted to make this was a, a panos cosmatos picture. And, you know, on studio movies or commercial projects, you, you test to, you know, uh, an unknown audience or a mainstream audience and you bring them in, you get feedback. And, you know, sometimes you make a lot of changes based on audience feedback. Mm-hmm. I, I participated in a movie a few years ago where we, um, started testing this movie to a, a very wide net. We, we cast out a lot of unknowns and brought them into a theater and got, you know, very mixed test results um, and then proceeded to make a lot of changes to the movie that we maybe didn't think, you know, was the best for the movie, but mm-hmm. hey, I'll get the test scores up. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, I, I feel like that was a big mistake um, because it then removed agency from the movie. Who was this movie for anymore? What was the vision of this? We're editing, you know, based off of test scores from an audience that we may not, we don't even necessarily trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, who is this for anymore? Who? What's the voice behind this? Why make these decisions? With Mandy, it was the exact opposite. Spectre was like, we don't, we don't want to test it. We don't want to show it to an audience. We, we fully trust panos and you know they're giving no specter was giving notes of course sure um, sure <laughs> so it wasn't like panos had like absolute free agency um but they they knew this was a niche movie for uh, a, a particular audience mm-hmm. and i think that is one of the reasons it's had and hopefully will have the longevity that it does um is that it it knows it, it doesn't give a shit about making a movie for everybody it's just mm-hmm. very particular about what it is yeah i mean and and it's also that thing of like you know, acknowledging what something is. Like, it always drives me crazy when a critic is like, well, I didn't like that movie because of all the singing. It's a musical. Like, what are you yeah. talking, what are you <laughs> What are you talking about? You know, like just to acknowledge what something is and to embrace it is so, is is for whatever reason, now it's like a courageous thing to do. You know, as like you said, as opposed yeah. to trying to, to to jam it into, you know, into something that it's not. Um, but it's just- It's like it, saying John Williams, like a Steven Spielberg movie, I don't like a John Williams score. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, they're, 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 you can't separate the two. Yes, yes. Those are symbiotic beings they, they're together you know and and so i want to talk a little bit about because i know we don't have uh, i don't want to take up all your morning i know we have a little bit of a of a, of a clock ticking i want to get to pig i want to jump ahead a little bit because yeah. because it, it is such a beautiful movie and and and, and you might i mean i know i know you were on that wonderful podcast uh the, the caged in podcast to talk about mm. um um nicholas cage which i which i listened to and i thought was a great interview by that interviewer who sounds exactly like timothy spall uh <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, and and all the work you've done with Nicolas Cage from Mandy to to Colorado Space, but Pig to me is so it's so wonderful because it's like it's such a it's such an interesting film that you can't really gauge what it is. And I heard you saying you know it was sort of frustrating to, that everyone's thinking of it as this sort of genre revenge movie, right? Mm-hmm. And and what I thought what I thought immediately was that it's like it's like this is a perfect example of sort of the internet at its worst because mm-hmm. I think it's that people now expect and they want Nicolas Cage to do the Mandy thing, you know, to do this sort of crazy. Uh, revenge over the top character. It's like people being mad at Tarantino for making Jackie Brown instead of Pulp, <laughs> instead of Pulp Fiction Part Two, you know. And yeah. and when I watched it, I had no expectation of what it was about. And and you know, basically, it's this. It's it's about a man who lives in the woods with and he's and he hunts truffles with this pig. 
And he has a relationship with sort of a truffle salesman played wonderfully by Alex Wolf, this character, Amir. And what I loved about it was the movie starts and it's got this sort of, there's sort of no music. It's this sort of sonic landscape of, of, the, of wildlife. And, and it brings you into the world in this sonic way that's so interesting. And then it's almost to me, it was like phantom thread with the process of them, you know, him and the pig, they're hunting for the truffles. And then he cooks Right. And, and, and each of the chapters are named after recipes mm-hmm. and you're sort of, I love that you're catching up to the story. You have to catch up to the story. And then what you realize is that it's almost like a chef noir <laughs> is yeah. in this way that this is a, that actually Nicholas Cage is this chef who's left the world because of a, because of a great tragedy. And now he has to wade back into the sort of under the, the backdrop is not, you know, the hitman who's back in the business or the fighter back in the business. It's the culinary world. The, yeah. the chef has to go back to the life and, and try to find his pig. And what I really found so beautiful about it was that it ultimately becomes this meditation on loss, but also on family, on fathers, Mm -hmm. on sons. And it's such an anti-Mandy performance from Nicolas Cage and it's so Mm -hmm. restrained. And, and so anyway, talk about how the project came to you and sort of what you responded to, because it's just a really, congratulations. It's such a great movie. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you'd be surprised how much of what you just referenced have been talked about in the editing room. Wow, <laughs> From, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, in conversations with Michael um, as we were editing the movie, I mean, we did look at it, you know, as if it is a revenge movie, but as if, you know, his tactics are he's the best chef in the world. Right, so right. how would the best chef in the world, you know, do revenge? Uh, we, we talked about how, or not, you know, just how he, not even revenge, how he would use it as a tactic to get mm. what he wants. Mm. Um, but it, of course, the noir elements were, we, we talked about in early, earlier iterations of the movie. I think we leaned a little bit more into kind of the film noir mm. references and styles of the movie. Um but I'll take it back to the beginning. So when uh, I was in Spain finishing Colorado Space, when I received the script, um, my agent sent it to me and he said in his email, like, this is, this may not be your kind of weird. It's weird, but let me know what you think. And I was, uh, my first impressions were that it does kind of start the first few pages start to kind of feel like it is going to be a setup for a kind of a, a wacky revenge movie. Mm. And it isn't until, I mean, character and well, well written, well written revenge movie, but it wasn't until I was about, you know, 40 pages into it by the time we get to uh, the chef fight, the, the line cook fight club mm. and Portland and the talk about um the nihilist conversation about how everything's going to end. The earthquake is coming, then the mm. tsunami. Mm. And, and, and that, area of act two where the true nature of the story began to come through where mm-hmm. this there's no the, the a plot in this is not really about a pig it's not that's the MacGuffin to get you into the world of the characters mm-hmm. what's at really at stake is this man's uh loss his sense is um denial of grief his denial of uh of society as a whole his mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how does can someone come back into society that's been away for this long that has shunned all this out? Can he build a relationship again? Can he move past what he's been running away from for 15 years? And when, so by the end of the script, um, it became really apparent, like this is what the story really cares about. And it was really beautifully told. Um, I, I got on the phone with uh, Michael and Vanessa Block, um, 
one of the lead creative producers who co-wrote this co-wrote the movie with Michael. Mm -hmm, And um, they, they had mentioned in the email that they had signed on um, a, uh, an actor that had greenlit the project, but they couldn't say who it was. Um, (laughs) And, but in the lookbook, because, you know, when the agencies send out a product, they send out a script and also send out a lookbook that like, Mm -hmm. you know, has the, the texture, the tone of these projects. And they had, I think one or two images of Nick in there from Joe. <laughs> and I was like, he would be, he would be perfect in this. Like this was, this really excites me now if Nick mm-hmm. is doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to which over the interview, I was like, so you got cage? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we, we do. How do you know? <laughs> I was like, I had a, I had a sense. And I also kind of sensed like, oh, okay, this might be why the script came to me in the first place, but wow. I'm cool. I'm cool with that. Let's do it. Um, we edited, they shot up in Portland. Uh, I went to uh, Toronto for color out of space and digital. And then I came back, started editing the movie here in my apartment in Los Angeles and began the process of, uh, of finding this with Michael and Vanessa. Um, Vanessa came on er- relatively early on the cut. Um, her and Michael are really tight creative partners. And so she was a key element of this mm-hmm. you know, collaborative process in the edit. Um, and it, you're right in terms of that it is very anti-Mandy in some ways. And that's, it's been very interesting to kind of see the, uh, the outside perspective of this movie. Like I remember when it was first announced, like John Oliver on last weekend tonight was like making fun of it. Um, and you know, that was like two, three years ago. Right. Um, and you see the perception of this, you know, when the trailer comes out, when the poster comes out um, and then, then that's kind of the first half of the equation. Then you have the globe, the very, glowing critical reviews that uh, came out and like michael had mentioned like oh yeah we're getting some really good press you know a few weeks before the premiere but no way was i expecting the kind of uh, acclaim that it's been getting um Mm -hmm. very proud of it don't get me wrong but completely caught off guard by like the unanimous um support for it uh and it's it's interesting because when you are in the in the editing room and you're working with this footage and you're working on these character trajectories and these stories and then you see someone online say oh it's it's bacon it's john wick with a pig you know the trailer made me think it was going to be something else and i was like mm-hmm. what was it about the beethoven sonata and the moody lighting and the subdued performance from cage and the fact you see almost no violence in the trailer made you think it was going to be a, like an action movie or a revenge movie for that matter but the more i think about it like the synopsis is kind of a b movie synopsis like if you're mm-hmm. just like kind of type mm-hmm. it out like you know a man it, it sounds silly a man in the woods with a pig gets his pig taken so he goes and to look for a truffle pig mm-hmm. and it's impossible to kind of be like huh that's kind of a little chuckle sure right. but that's just i think one of the things that may have even worked out in our favor because mm-hmm. kind of the same thing that happened with Mandy, uh, even at Sundance a few years ago, we heard about the public sees Nicolas Cage, you know, in this you know, revenge, you know, uh, fantasy, you know, totally over the top. And then they hear, they see the reviews and they see what the critics are saying and the interest is peaked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're going through something very similar here where you have something that kind of sounds like a little bit of a silly premise could go easily go either way in terms of the quality of the movie. And they see these reviews and this acclaim coming in and suddenly this juxtaposition between like silly B movie plot, but like universal critical acclaim. I, I, I have to see this. I, I don't know what this is, but this makes a lot of sense. Uh, this makes no sense. Let's check it out. Um, and then they discover what the movie really is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, it's been, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 not at all. I, I, it's, I guess what, what, I, what, what, what really 
you know, I, I just want people to know that the, it, as a piece of writing, as a piece of storytelling, the script is so good in terms of mm-hmm. how it tells the story and how it reels you in. And I, and I just think it's, 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 it's very uh, undersold by people who are, who are sort of, I don't know, talking about the movie or saying it's John Wick with, mm-hmm. a, with a pig because, because it's just, it just tells such an elegant story, you know I mean? And it, and it is, it is satisfying in a very different way, in a very emotional way, you know, because I love at the end that it's this kind of, you know, basically the, the, the thing that does replace Nicolas Cage's character's love is his relationship with Alex Wolf yeah. with with Amir and yeah. and and it's this beautiful echo of you know Alex has this kind of abusive father played by Adam Arkin who's terrific but his father figure kind of becomes Nicolas Cage and mm-hmm. what I also love about it though it doesn't try to resolve it in this ridiculous way both Alex and Alex Wolf's character and and uh, Nicholas Cage character have to sort of go back to their lives and mm-hmm. deal with deal with their trauma, but they're going to see each other on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, you know. Exactly. So it, so it's so hopeful. It's just it's just really a beautiful film. I, I you know and oh. and I guess I guess I also wanted to talk about two two other things before we kind of get to uh, well the first thing is you know it's a movie that isn't filled with crazy sequences. It, it's a very much a movie of moments and of, mm-hmm. of, 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 you know, people always say it's hardest to shoot people having dinner, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, cause it, cause, cause it's so simple. So deceptively simple. This movie feels like it's, it's entirely made up of all those beautifully simple moments. How do you approach a movie like this versus, you know, a, a movie like Manny, that's an action horror film, yeah. you know, how do you approach a movie like this, which, which is sort of made up of these moments? Uh, well, I, I think in a movie like this, which is uh, features a very re- cage being extremely restrained, mm. you still have to operate on the function that something could happen at any given moment. Ah. And I think one of the, that's one of the things that is uh, giving the film a lot of its, uh, you know, why people are responding the way they are is because they think it could easily veer off into another direction at the time of a hat. I mean, Cage is bloodied and bruised the entire movie and he's extremely angry and pissed off. And yet he doesn't act. He doesn't throw a single punch. He kicks a car, but like he doesn't harm another human Hmm. the entire movie, but we want the audience to think that he could. And he, and then he does that. He, He achieves that tactic. His, he achieves his goal and his objective in a, in a tactic that is more interesting than a punch. So the scene I'm thinking of in particular is the dinner scene at Eurydice, where he takes down Chef uh, at Finway, all about the pub and whatnot. Oh, and unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's, in my opinion, the best scene in the movie. It was my favorite scene to cut in the film. Um, took me, I think, four days just in my first pass on that scene. And wow. it was... Um, the first time I knew that, holy shit, like this, this is going to be something like there's so much power behind what Cage is not doing. Like in Mandy for Mandy or any of these other action movies, you know, he would break out, he would be external, he would use force. Mm. Um, but I think one of the things that people forget about Nick is that when he chooses to internalize it, Mm. you get something arguably more interesting behind the eyes Mm -hmm. you get something with the focus the screen charisma the patience the comfort in front of a camera Mm -hmm. that is uniquely captivating and terrifying at the same time Mm -hmm. when you have a suspense sequence because we we approach that scene even though it is a dinner table scene Mm -hmm. it's a suspense scene it's Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. interrogation scene Mm -hmm. nick is in there you know 
we want them to think he could do something at any moment. Mm-hmm. And yet he mm-hmm. does, but his tactic is so sly and um, uh, all through character and all through dialogue. Mm-hmm. So he still, you know, rips apart the chef. He still completely degrades this guy, humiliates him, and yet does so in a voice that's barely a- above a whisper by yeah, but yet, but yet, he also kind of helps the guy. You know, he he kind of gives him this philosophical advice, and he sees him so honestly. And it's also like to the testament of Cage, like you said, the restraint. It really is a testament to his art of film acting, which is to be truly be able to do nothing and be so watchable because he's doing he's doing so much behind in his head, oh, yeah. in his mind, in his heart. You know. Yeah. Um, he's. He, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead, please. Well, I was just, he's channeling all of that behind. And so when you approach a sequence like this, you're always thinking about this, like what could happen? What is an audience, what is an audience's assumption of the scene? And how do I keep on surprising them? How do I kind of lead that fish hook ahead of them? So they're, they think it's going to want, go in one direction and they pivot. Like uh, one of the key moments in that scene is when you kind of learn the chef has the pig or he knows where the pig is. And he's like, truffles are a key moment of the, the menu. So I'm sure you'll understand. And then Kate just kind of stares at him and he sits back and you're like, Oh fuck, it's time. He's going to go, he's going to throw a chair. He's going to break this guy's nose. And he's like, what is the, um, uh, what was it? What is the concept of this place? And you're like, Oh shit. And now I see, now I know where this is going to go. Uh, and yet it's still surprising. Um, and you're, you're also thinking about like the other things that have to happen in that scene, because it's also a team up scene. It, it's the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it comes at a very crucial point in both of their respective arcs where they've mm-hmm, been mm-hmm. two separate people of two separate goals. And this is the first time they come together mm-hmm. as a common team to like, fu- interrogate this guy they work together alex prompts him cage responds um and they feel like they're bonding they're becoming a more than just a buyer and a a hunter like they're they're uh, there's a sense of mutual appreciation there which is kind of the point of no return for those characters so it also has to work on those levels as well um and, and working with like a subdued cage performance is like i said it's just trying to find that subtext of like what where does this scene fit in the greater arc of the movie mm-hmm. in terms of a character trajectory what is holding them back what does the character want that we can't express in dialogue but we have to communicate to communicate through body language and try to balance all those overall story needs with the coverage that you have and like the uh you know the beat to beat performances and storytelling you need in like this two or three minute section Mm-hmm. And by the way, the actor who plays the chef is terrific. I mean, oh, he yeah. he is just incredible. And 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 you know, it's also uh, I guess so. So so I think a good place to kind of get to is you know uh, when I asked Benjamin Loeb what it was like to work with uh, Nicolas Cage, he said he's still a mystery to me. You know, he said, mm-hmm. and and I'm and I'm just I'm just so curious. You know. It feels to me because I, you know, I, I take a little bit of umbrage with people saying, "Oh, you know, he fell off for all these years, and now it's the the the, the you know the the renaissance of Cage." And I'm like, I actually think he was. This is a guy who was willing to do a strange voice in Peggy Sue to the point where the studio was going to fire him back in yeah. the day, right? It's like he has always been ahead of the curve and so confident in his craft, and and I think 
actually it was the industry that fell behind him. And I think now filmmakers like, you know, the indie scene is sort of caught up to Nicolas Cage, you know, and it's sort of yeah. like, but I, I'm just so curious what it must be like to, to edit scenes with him and to work with footage of, of him performing when, cause he feels to me like he's giving you stuff that you're constantly going, Oh my God, is he doing that? Is he, is it always surprising to, 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 to cut a, a scene with Nick Cage? Most of the time, yes. <laughs> Most of, and that's one of my, one of the reasons I really love working with him is that I'm constantly invigorated and surprised and fascinated by what he does. Um, on a movie like Pig, for instance, um, it, it was like I, I've mentioned this before, but it's often about what he's not going to do. It's about restraint. It's about control. It's about um, uh, the allowing you to have empathy with him because he's so. Uh, it's so compelling, but quiet, and you can't help but feel for this guy. Um, on a film like Color Out of Space, where it's an entirely different performance and like mm-hmm. a different need, it's a different, it's a pretty different experience working with material like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I'm not sure if who has seen the movie in terms of you know the audience members um, on the podcast, but um, when these alien organism in the movie begins to infect people on the farm, everybody begins to go through some kind of mutation or some Mm -hmm. kind of change. Mm -hmm. And so with Nick's character in particular, he develops into kind of this manic uh, reflection of his father, his his Mm -hmm. father figure. Mm -hmm. Um, And Nick is actually like channeling his real dad in this role. And he kind of takes on this affectation that some people have incorrectly linked Trump, but it's actually his dad. It's and it's when you look at a performance like that, it's really interesting because the movie as a whole is not a gonzo movie. It's not a it's not a crazy. It goes to a crazy place, but like the filmmaking is quite patient mm. and um, disciplined. I would say for the most part, absolutely um, very very elegant, extremely elegant. And Cage's performance in some dailies sometimes got a bit too big for that. Um, it, it got a bit too too much it kind of it started to become the central focus and of the project and so we had to there's sometimes we had to kind of try and dial him back a little bit so he kind of felt like he was still in tone with the other actors because the other actors are you know uh in a certain character mood and the movie has a certain rhythm and a certain energy and so sometimes you're crafting performance and sometimes with cage when he will give you you know zero to eleven depending on, you know, um, <laughs> the director and you know the producers and how he's feeling and where he thinks that's going to go. We found in the edit room that although a performance was extremely compelling and big and so interesting, sometimes it overshadowed that area of the movie. Sometimes it overshadowed the story mm-hmm. and you now just started thinking about the voice or the energy and you weren't thinking about the movie. Um, so sometimes we had to take that into consideration and, you know, Maybe you lose a line here, play a line off of on Brendan or Madeline or jo- um, Jolie instead mm-hmm. to try and make that performance fit what the scene needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, it's interesting because I feel like if you, I've seen a, a ton of other amazing, great Cage films that do this, where they're able to kind of challenge that energy and this rhythm into something that's so utterly fascinating. I mean, Bad Lieutenant comes to mind, for instance. Oh man, yeah, you know? sure, absolutely. Um, and he's when he's in sync with the director and the project, he's going to give you stuff that is so interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like any other actor, sometimes you need to craft that. Sometimes you need to kind of build that and make it fit the scene, the tone of the movie mm-hmm. um, with 
Mandy, for instance, I mean, we did that something similar where like Panos actively tried not to lean into some of Cage's bigger moments on set. Mm -hmm. Like there's actually a lot more footage of like Cage going bigger um, that we just didn't find appropriate for the movie because kind of the same thing. It then overshadowed, it became more about Cage and less about Red Miller. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like these, the things about like, you know, Nick has been making the movies I feel like he wants to make the last few years. Like mm-hmm. he's he's mm-hmm. doing every he, he loves to work. Um, and I love working with him and I love love his ethos because he likes to get out there and play and experiment and he's being bold and tr- really trying things out. Like he is doing exactly what he wants to do, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think he wants to do big studio movies like like he said there's a, like a culture of fear on some of these big movies and on some of these smaller films he has an opportunity to kind of uh, you know, test the space, so so to speak. Absolutely, it's it's just so inspiring. You know, I mean, especially because I mean, even the stuff in Mandy where it's him and Andrea just just watching television. You know, having dinner. It's so cap. You can hold on it for so long because just the way they're not even looking at each other, but they're eating and they're watching the TV. It's just such such you know really beautiful connected acting. You know that I think that only a person like like Nick Cage and and obviously Andrea Riseborough, who's also really wonderful uh, uh, in general, um, can can do. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I don't I don't want I want to be respectful of your time. So I, I guess I just want to end with. You know, um, if you had any advice for young film filmmakers or old filmmakers who are who are trying to you know break into the business or or find their way or do what you do, you know, what what would your advice be to them? Uh, find people you want to keep on working with. Uh, find someone that you feel like you can be yourself with, that you can be exper- you can experiment with, you can uh, form a collective around. I feel extremely fortunate that. I found a, a group of people that I want to keep on working with, you know, when I was 24 years old and they took a shot on me. Like I was, uh, I had no credits to my name, um, but I, uh, I came in with a sense of, I was curious. I, I wanted to listen. I wanted to see what they were about. And we kind of found each other at, at a perfect time. And I, I hope I keep on working on SpectreVision movies. Um, I have really enjoyed my time with them. Um, and it's, if I had any advice, it would be to find, find people you want to work with and the kind of segment off of that, like study story. Like if you're looking to get into, you know, editing or, or, or directing, like you would be surprised how many people are not making decisions based on story and how, if you're in a jam, knowing structure, uh, character arcs, is the bread and butter of what I do every single day. It influences almost every other decision I make on a day-to-day basis in the edit room. And it's, it's been invaluable to me. Well said. Well said. Thank you, Brett. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you for having me on. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.